I sadly get a lot of people who come along, do the training, and then don't do anything. They just don't do anything. And it's really sad. And it used to frustrate me a lot in the early days. And in the end, I just realized I had to let it go. But the number one reason why people don't get work is because they're not going for any work and they're not doing anything. And that might surprise you, but it's absolutely true. And it's not to say that if you do go for it, you're definitely going to get some work, but you're in a far better position to get some work and you're far more competitive trying to do it. Are you searching for your ideal career, fed up of your daily grind, or simply want to hear some inspiring stories? Then you've come to the right place, because it's time to do a job you love. It's time to get work savvy. Welcome to episode 18 of the Get Work Savvy podcast. I hope that you're well, and I'm so glad that you could join us for another episode. This podcast aims to provide you tips, tricks, and ideas to help you find a way to get paid for your passion. And who better to learn from? than those people who've been able to do it themselves. Every week we bring you a new episode focusing on a different profession and we cover a wide range of different industries to give you some ideas about the kind of jobs that are out there. So if you're just starting on your career journey, if you're thinking about a career change, if you're doing something that you don't particularly like at the moment, or if you're like me and just fascinated about what others consider their dream job to be, then you're in the right place. This week we talk to the incredible Gary Terza. Now, you'd have recognised Gary's voice from the introduction of each episode. So first of all, thank you for Gary for recording that short intro for us. But as well as that, you may recall hearing his voice introducing some of your favourite TV shows in the past. Gary shares his incredible story, how he found his job as a continuity artist, and then later how he's gone on to help others do the same. We'll find out more about Gary's story in a second. But what I would like to do is just focus on something that we talk about at the start of his episode. Gary remembers quite clearly going into his careers office, telling them what dreams he had about the career that he wanted to pursue and how they pretty much told him to go and focus on finding something different. I think this is an experience that many of us have and certainly one that I can remember. So if it is that you're thinking about doing something and you only hear others telling you how it's not possible, simply smile, kind of accept what they're saying for what their opinion is and then find a way to make it happen yourself. And just like many of our guests, if you put in enough hard work and have the right determination, I'm sure you're going to be able to get work savvy and find that career that is perfect for you. If you do like the show, then fantastic. I hope you subscribe because that will enable you to get a new podcast every single Monday. And if you know somebody who you think this episode would help or any of the other episodes, then please share it in any way that you can with anyone that you feel it would be useful to. If you want to follow the Get Work Savvy podcast, Find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for at Get Work Savvy. And if you do have a spare five minutes, because I know time is so precious, please go and leave a rating review about what you think about the show, because not only will it help me to improve what it is that I'm doing, but equally, I want this to help you and not just be something that I'm interested in. For those of you who are thinking, oh, I'm not sure if voiceover work is what I really want to get into, then I say, give it a listen because it's a fascinating interview. But equally, there's so many tips, tricks and advice that you can pick up from Gary's experience. And just in case you don't pick these up during the show, remember that I'm going to summarise these at the end of the episode, as well as you being able to find them on the show notes of this episode. So without any further delay, let's begin this week's interview. So hi to Gary and welcome to the Get Work Savvy podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Yes, fine. Thanks, Liam. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, my absolute pleasure. And for those of you who are listening, yes, you do recognize his voice, I'm sure, from many things in the past, but I'll let Gary introduce himself. Could you just start off by explaining what it is that you do? Yes. My name is Gary, Gary Terza. Strange surname, T-E-R-Z-Z-A. I think it's pronounced Terza anyway. That's how I assume I've been, how I've been pronouncing it since I was <laughs> knee-high to a grasshopper. But I'm a, basically, I'm a voiceover person. And in my particular case, that covers a few areas. I've spent my career being a continuity announcer, Channel 4 for a long, long time. And before that, I was at ITV in the Midlands. And I did one or two other bits and bobs. I seem to remember I did VH1. Uh, if you ever watch VH1, the kind of older person's MTV. I was a, an announcer on there as well. But mostly Channel 4. I think people may know my voice from there. But I also do a lot of voiceovers, and I've done a lot of voiceovers uh, during that time as well, run that in parallel, and that means usually doing fairly prosaic things like corporates and online training, but um, lots of other sorts of things as well, commercials and promos and so on. Excellent. 
So I'm, I'm a voiceover artist and also since 2005, I'm also a, a voiceover coach as well. So helping other people get into the industry and um, giving them advice, tips and training them and helping to launch their careers. Absolutely fantastic. So that is a, a great little overview and a, a little bit of a, a background as what it is that you do. Was this something that you wanted to do when you were at school and when you were growing up? Is this something you had an idea about or what was your aspirations growing up? I remember when I was in the sixth form going to the careers that we had a careers advisor, you know how you do. And I remember turning up with the place for the, for the careers advice and she said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd quite like to get into broadcasting. And this was sort of late 1970s when it was very rare. I was just kind of a working class kid going to a comprehensive school. And to say something like that was a bit sort of, um, oh, right, okay, well, it's nice to have dreams, <laughs> but um, how about the civil service? <laughs> <laughs> so I did think, hmm, maybe she's got a point really. So I kind of thought maybe I should get into the civil service. I never did, but I was thought, oh, maybe that's, that, that'll be a good backstop. So I knew I wanted to do something broadcasting you I wasn't quite sure what that was wasn't quite sure whether it was journalism or it was presenting or doing I, I suppose voiceover type things or radio particularly and radio sort of captured my imagination I suppose more than anything but I ended up doing tv and after university I got an amazing amazing break actually really lucky break working for my local TV channel and they trained me and everything. I mean, it was, it was just a, a dream come true working as an announcer. So, and we were partly on camera and partly voiceover. So sometimes you see my ugly mug up there and sometimes it would just be voice. And I did get this amazing break. To get there though, I did do some hospital radio. So I spent my time, uh, my kind of university time doing some hospital radio stuff. We didn't have a student radio station at the university I went to, but locally where I lived in Nottingham, we did have a, a very good hospital radio station. So I just kind of picked up a few skills there and I did kind of everything, which everyone did, you know, from ward visiting to reading the news, to doing sports commentaries, to presenting music shows and so on. So it was a really lovely place to start and volunteer, you know, and I always recommend to people that they start in community radio or student radio or hospital radio. It's a very good proving ground, actually, for people who want to do anything sort of in the broadcasting-y, entertainment-y world. Fantastic. That's a, a great little introduction to how it is that you got there and following that dream. I'm sure that, like you say, back then, that was the standard response of like, yeah, this it's nice to have a dream and, and, and I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that was very true. And, and probably still is, you know, I think it still is to some extent. Yeah. Uh, when you get to that stage and, and probably some of your listeners think, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd love to do that, but I've been stuck in a job, college or whatever. And I would say, just go for it. You know, it, it is possible. And in some ways it's more possible today than it was back then, because there are so many outlets and so many more opportunities and it's international as well now. So in some ways it's got easier, I think, depending on what you want to do. But I think certainly trying to get into voiceovers, is it, it's, it's never been easier actually. I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but there are certainly lots of avenues and lots of steps you can take now. I think you're absolutely spot on with that piece of advice of, of that the world has changed in that sense. And, and one thing I do try and tell the listeners is since the internet's arrived, you've got so many different opportunities in, in the sense of like, not only has the technology improved and it's become a lot cheaper. So TV adverts are no longer the really expensive things that they used to be. Companies can put an advert or a promo video together just for their website even. And like you say, looking for those opportunities and, and trying to get that bit of experience, whether it be hospital radio or I know around my way, there's a charity where they actually read the newspaper for visually impaired people. So it could be that you get uh, yes, experience yes. for that or yep. not to kind of take over from, from your expertise there, but like having obviously started the podcast, I've looked into that kind of world a little bit as well. And I must say that, yeah, if it is that people are thinking about this, perhaps dipping your toe in the water is something that I certainly would agree with you there. Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah. Talking books for the blind. Yeah. Very good. Uh, very good sort of practice there. You know, you're doing some good as well. You know, it, it's kind of a, a couple of things you can do. And I think there are lots and lots of platforms now to sell your voice. I mean, it doesn't have to be voluntary stuff these days. You can actually make some money out of voiceovers too. Surprisingly, even without any experience, doesn't mean you can be rubbish, but <laughs> if you've got a, uh, what might be deemed a good voice, whatever that is, 
and you're good at reading out loud, then potentially, you know, you've got the, the makings of a voiceover person, really. Fantastic. Yeah. And no, I think that's absolute sound advice. And like you say, you don't have to do it as just a, a free service. You can potentially make some money out from the onset. Mm. Going back a little bit back onto to your journey, you had that great break and you got into that TV role where you did a little bit of everything. Mm. What cemented your decision to, was it an opportunity that arrived or did you just suddenly think, yeah, voiceover is for me how did you take the leap from perhaps doing that particular role to to jump into more of a voiceover continuity voiceover artist well i because i started it was my first proper page well not my first proper paid job that was working in a news agents but my my kind of second proper paid job <laughs> um well actually it was my third proper paid job because my first one was uh, delivering newspapers and then working in a news agents and then my first kind of proper you know full-time grown-up job was as a continuity announcer so it was an incredible lucky break you know i wasn't allowed on air for months months and months i remember in those days equity the actors union was very very powerful and i'm talking about the early 1980s about 1982 and they wouldn't allow me on air this was in the midlands on itv uh, the particular station's called central tv or it was then and they wouldn't allow me on air. They said, no, 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 you've got no experience and you've just come out of university. You know, you're, you're still a student, basically, which was true. You know? <laughs> and you've done a little bit of hospital radio. That's not good enough. Again, that was true. You know? <laughs> so uh, quite understandably, they wouldn't let me on air. So I had to be trained and I had to have a special mentor and people would kind of look after me. And I had a, you know, a couple of good mentors that um, carried me through and I wasn't allowed on air until I'd reached a, what they perceived to be a, a suitable standard still doesn't mean I was any good but a standard they felt they could get away with and um, so that's how I started really I mean I've never had a proper job apart from working in the news agency you know that was that was kind of my my only proper job since the early 80s I've just done things as a continuity announcer on screen and off and as voiceover um, we, we did trailers and promos as well in fact, it just goes to show how the industry has changed just in my time that when I started, we would do live promos and trailers. You know, you get trailers, so advertising what's coming up next. So it's yeah. uh, Celebrity Big Brothers on in half an hour's time, whatever, or watch out for the new series of Bake Off. It starts next week and all that. And we used to do a lot of those live, interestingly. Wow. You'd be on air and really cut my teeth as a live continuity announcer. And that's my area, really. And I remember in the early days, they would run in a bit of videotape, VT it's called, for those who've got long memories and remember the days of, of tape. <laughs> and they'd say, look, here's a comedy show, but there isn't any talking at the beginning. There's just a laughter track or some music. Can you talk over that and say, tonight at seven on ITV, it is blah, blah, blah. So you used to do that. And sometimes you did it to the network. So they'd play in something. And they'd say, well, all the network, i.e. the whole of IT, all in those days, there was lots of different little ITV companies. And I worked for Central, which was based in Birmingham, but people would join from, you know, London and Glasgow and so on. So uh, you'd all meet up. All the stations would join up together for the big programs like Coronation Street. And often you would have to leap in and do these promos as well, these, these trailers, which we did live. And sometimes they were on VT. When I started, there was still a bit of stuff on film, the old proper film. So 16 mil, wow. they would run in the telecine, as it was called then. And that was, I think, if I remember rightly, a five-second roll-up time. So you had to wait for five seconds for it to come in. And I think it was 10 seconds on VT. So you, if you remember, you used to have a little clock that would sometimes go to air accidentally. you get a VT clock, so it would be like yeah, I remember counting that. down. Of course, you weren't supposed to see that, but the announcer or the voiceover person would see that and they'd know that their time was coming up in 10 seconds time or five seconds time or whatever. And now, of course, it's all completely instant. It's just digital and, and you know, so much better, really. But in those days, you had to allow for that. So I, I started really as, a, as an announcer, and that's all I've done. Well, I say that, but, you know, lots of permutations of that. But so I was very, very lucky. And so the, kind of the voiceover, kind of more mainstream voiceover sort of fell in from that, really. I, I went off and did some radio. But in fact, really interestingly, from tail end of my career at Central TV, I was then booked along with a co-presenter to do CITV, which is Children's ITV. So I did that for 18 months away uh, as well from um, about sort of 87 
1987, I think that was, 88. I did that for about, like I say, about 18 months, I think. And then went into radio. So it was much more about voiceover then when we did the radio. So we did promos and it was live music presentation. And then after that, after my radio career, which was based up in the, in the Midlands, I then came down to London to do Channel 4 in 1991. So it's sort of long-winded answer to your question. I've, I've kind of never done anything else, really. <laughs> but, but voiceovers themselves have changed in those years. So sometimes back in the early 80s, it was really commercials were done by a hardcore of voice actors. And that was it. You know, there's no way you could get in. And now that's not the case. Thank goodness, you know, it's been democratized and it's much more liberal uh, in the sense that it's open to lots of people. But in those days, it wasn't. And even if you were on TV, which I was, you know, locally, it still didn't mean you could necessarily go and do voiceovers, particularly other than trailers and things like that, which I did and promos. And they came much later, they, well, much later, they came in the 90s, really, when I started doing more of that sort of stuff and commercials and things like that, in addition to my Channel 4 continuity work. So I've been really, really lucky in having this great career from sort of 80, 82 onwards, I guess. Fantastic. I think that you used the word lucky, but you also took a chance as well because you could have quite easily back in that careers office gone, oh, okay, perhaps I haven't got a chance and, and never gone for it. So yeah, well, definitely a little bit of luck with um, the opportunities that you got, but yeah, awesome work with uh, being brave and, and actually going for it. I think that's something that... I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got a point, but also you have to remember that when I started 82 there was we talk about recessions and things now and, and unemployment and so on but uh, 82 was a pretty bad year economically so most of my university friends hadn't even got jobs so let alone been able to walk on into a tv station and say well can I do some announcing for you, <laughs> which I, you know, I had. So not only was it amazing, I got a job, you know, I remember when they offered me the post, I remember telling some friends at uni and saying, you know, I've got, I've got a job. And they went, wow, wow, you've actually got a job. I said, yeah, but it's not just any old job. It's working at a TV radio station, ITV in the Midlands. And they went, what? <laughs> So it was, you know, it was, it was pretty incredible. You, could, you couldn't not turn it down. And I think also, obviously, when you're younger, you're, you're much braver, aren't you? you know, as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, you know, anything goes really. And, you know, you're willing to take those risks. Yeah. I think if I, if I was offered it now, I probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> but back then, you know, you, you're kind of, you're brave. You know nothing, but you know, bravery kicks in, I think, and devil may care, a devil-may-care attitude, I guess. Absolutely brilliant and fantastic insight to uh, I, I remember seeing those clocks yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I always thought like why have they put them on the screen but I had no idea that it would be because it was a live intro that was happening so um, so yeah fantastic uh, little insight there thank you very much mm, for that. No you're welcome. So moving on to what it is you do now obviously you do a bit of voiceover work did you want to just talk about what it is you do um, by actually with the training element of what you do as well? Yeah sure I mean I set up a training program back in 2005. The, the reason I, I did that was I'd always and always had, because I'd, I'd done this you know, unusual job. People would say to me at dinner parties and meeting them in, in new people, meeting them in the pub or whatever. They'd say, well, what do you do? And, and I'd tell them and they go, oh, that sounds interesting. How do you get into that? And it's very difficult to, I mean, I've told you how I've got into it, but it's very difficult to say to someone, well, <laughs> that's what you need. You need a lot of luck and uh, off you go. <laughs> you know? And, and I thought, well, how do you get into it? You know, when you nail it down, I wasn't quite sure how I'd explain that in a sort of understandable, cogent way. So I thought, well, lots of people are asking this question. Would I be able to train them? And more to the point, would they ever be able to get any work? So I, I set this up and I've done some training at Channel 4. I'd spent quite a long time as part of my duties as an announcer. And a lot of the announcers were doing this as well. You would train new announcers. And Channel 4 were always very good at introducing new talent. The one thing Again, you know, sort of, I was part of a crest of a wave back in the early 90s of new voices coming in. And periodically, they'd have a new wave of voices that they wanted. And I was part of that intake back in 91. And then once I've been doing it a while, they then get you to train the next intake. So you train those as well. So I, and I always enjoyed the training side. And it was always nice seeing people start as raw recruits, being very nervous on air and so on, to being you know, confident announcers. And I got a great satisfaction from that. And so it seemed a logical progression for me to then take that and do it privately as a, on a course, but be much more encompassing. So rather than just doing 
continuity announcing, which is a very special kind of niche, I suppose, in voiceovers to doing kind of more mainstream voiceovers. So teaching people how to do audio books and commercials and promos and corporate material and so on. So it took off there and I wondered whether anyone would turn up and they did. <laughs> and like I say, I wondered whether anyone would get some work and, and they did. And I thought, well, actually, this is going quite well. So kind of started it from that point of view, really, of, well, you know, how would I teach someone and would it work and would they get work and it, it sort of snowballed from there really fantastic and is it a live tutorial you do i know nowadays that that you've got like online learning in, is much more of a big thing but did you start off as like the face-to-face seminars you run and, and progress into the online world yeah that's still very much what i do it's, it's very much one-to-one in the studio we normally do a start with a three-hour uh, intensive session in the studio the newcomer, the new voice, and me and a sound engineer together working in a, in a professional studio and giving them that experience of what's, what's it like to go in a studio. And then we, we work on a very small amount of material, probably three or four minutes, you know, no more, but we spend a good three hours doing that. It's quite an intensive session, actually. And it tests, it certainly tests the the metal of the, the person doing it. You know, it, it's, it, you're talking about nerves and being brave enough to do it. I always think people are brave to come along. My wife always says, why are people coming onto your course? You know, today? <laughs> they know what they're letting themselves in for. And I say, well, they are brave to just come along and you know, get to that stage. It does take a, a lot of gumption, I think, to do it. A lot of backbone, really, because they're coming along to do a thing. And, and remember, that I'm training complete beginners, people who've never spoken into a microphone before. You know, they've heard voiceovers, but they've never done one. They've never read a script out under those sorts of conditions. So they are very brave, I think. And, and so I'm always amazed when you know, they do so well, and particularly when they get work. And that's always a real satisfaction for me to people say, oh, you know, I've got, got an audio book or I'm doing a commercial next week or doing some corporate material, whatever it is, or even continuity announcing. It's always a great sense of pride, I suppose, on my part. But I always think, well, actually, it's got very little to do with me. It's all to do with them, you know, and what they're doing. I just kind of, I suppose, shine a light on the road ahead for them and say, well, this is what I recommend you do. For my students, my one-to-one students, I provide a year's worth of backup support and mentoring as well. So I don't leave them high and dry. Most of my work is spent listening to my students as they audition. Mostly in voiceovers these days, you're auditioning. So when they do an audition, I then review that for them and we, we take a listen and critique it pretty much how we would have done it in the studio. And then I'll make suggestions like, you know, it's too fast, it's too slow, or emphasize that word, not this word, and so on. I like to think of myself as a a sort of, um, I suppose, an extra pair of ears is the best way to describe it for my students when they come along, you know. Um, And I do things like help them charge for fees, and quote for fees, sorry. So not every job has a set fee, and where it doesn't, unless you know what you're doing, you can often undershoot, actually, and undercharge yourself, and you don't want to do that, but by the same token, you don't want to overcharge and frighten the clients off. You know? So again, I'm there as a kind of listening post, an advisor, as this mentor, if you like, over a period of time. Fantastic. That's a great insight for anyone who's potentially thinking about it. I know that for me, I have obviously started this podcast and I've purchased like a microphone and all that kind of stuff. But it was such a scary thing when I first got a microphone. Yeah. Uh, and thought, oh, yeah. what am I meant to be doing? And well, I know that I follow you on, well, we're connected on LinkedIn and I follow like your YouTube channel and things like that. Mm. And I know that you have some um, some sound advice on there. So I wondered if you're able to share perhaps some some basic tips for anyone who's thinking about getting into this particular world, whether it's basic techniques maybe or some some kit that you could suggest for them yeah i mean i think if you're if you're thinking of getting into voiceovers the best practice you can get even before you consider taking any training or coaching or whatever is to just practice reading out loud and if you can record even before you get yourself a microphone you know record on your computer on your little inbuilt mic or even on your phone the quality won't be brilliant but it'll give you a bit of an idea and i think you have to say to yourself well what are voiceovers all about okay they're about the voice to some extent, but it's not all about the voice. It's really about what you do with it. And I always ask people to think of their voice as a musical instrument, really. And it's how you play that musical instrument. And in our case, it's how you read the words on the page and bring them to life. And I always try and impress on people, if you're starting out, you know, one of the best things you can do is just read. Read as much as you can, but crucially, read out loud. And if you can record yourself, even better. And then once you're 
confident with that and you're getting better and better, then it's time to think about buying a microphone. I'm not quite sure what you've got there, Liam. It sounds very good and I'm very impressed with the quality of it. <laughs> I would say, I mean, there's a big debate about USB mics or not USB mics. Should you have one or shouldn't you have one? And it's kind of, well, what do you want to do? And are you trying to make some money out of it? And what's your, you're looking for some return on your investment. I think it's very important in voiceovers to see yourself as a, as a business, really. It's not just the artistry, being a voice actor. It's about running a business and I think selling your voice. You know, it's almost like you were out there selling a, uh, being a, a plumber or an electrician or something where, you know, you're selling your services and what you do. It's the same in voiceovers. You're running a business selling your voice. And I think you, you want to be looking for some return on your investment. That's the, the most important thing. So if you've got a limited budget, you may want to start with a USB condenser mic. It's condenser mics that we use in voiceovers. Um, and you can start for as little as 40 odd pounds. I mean, there's a blue snowball. I don't know whether you've come across this mic. Very, very pretty looking mic. Quite retro art deco type yep. thing. And it's not brilliant. It's not the best microphone in the world, but it will get you started, you know, and give you certainly a, a chance to hear yourself in a better sounding way compared to just recording on the inbuilt mic on your microphone. And I would say if you can start with that, if that's your budget. I've got a student, interestingly, I'm sure he won't mind me sharing the story to you. And my student has got this uh, blue snowball and he said, that's all I can afford. And I said, well, you know, you ought to think about getting a better mic. He said, no, that's all I can afford. That's the absolute peak of my budget. I've, I've blown the budget now and that's it. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, we'll see how you get on. And he's now on his second audio book. So wow. different clients have different quality thresholds. Now, of course, you could go out and spend 2000 pounds on a Neumann U87 microphones, you know, a fantastic mic and lots of broadcasters use them, the kind of the workhorse of the broadcasting industry, but they're incredibly expensive and you'd have to buy an interface and you need a decent interface for, for that. You know, you probably blow another 500,000 pounds. So you've got 3000 pounds of, of equipment there, but it would sound pretty ropey if you were recording in a bathroom or a kitchen with that mic. Likewise, you could buy yourself something like a, a USB condenser mic, like a Blue Yeti, and which is actually slightly better than the Snowball. It's about three times as expensive, about 120 pounds, but it would give you a much better reproduction if you then had lots of soft furnishings around you. So blankets and curtains and carpets and things like that. Just make yourself a little den, a little, little studio, and you'd create a much better, warmer sound, greater presence on the voice. And to most people's ears, that would sound a better mic rather than the expensive one because you've got the acoustics there. So I always say to people, it's as much about the acoustics as it is about the microphone. And don't think of one without the other. You know, the two are, are not mutually exclusive. They're uh, symbiotic, to use a kind of pretentious word, um, but they're dependent on each other. And you need lots of soft furnishings to create that studio effect, really. And what you're trying to do is to remove the room echo from your room. Having said that, you might hear a lot of room echo on my one because I'm in my dining room today, which I don't normally record in, but <laughs> I've got better Wi-Fi here. So I thought I better, for your podcast, Liam, I thought I better <laughs> go for that. So um, don't listen to me. Yours is much better. I can't hear any room echo on yours. Yours sounds excellent, actually. Oh, fantastic. I've, I've worked on that a bit. Like you say, it's finding that setup that works for you and not necessarily having that that bounce and, and having that echo mm. effect. I mean, the microphone that I'm recording on at the moment is a Audio-Technica ATR2100. I don't know if you familiar with that um is it an at 2020 i think it's 2100 i could be wrong is it a condenser mic it's a condenser yeah right right it's an xlr and uh and a usb combined so oh right right no i haven't heard i mean i use an audio technica myself i use a 4050 okay which is a good mic but the atr i'm not um sure i don't I think I know that one, but I'm going to look it up as soon as I finish this podcast with you. But Audio Technica are a very good make. I mean, they do lots of things across the board and they do a, a cheap and cheerful USB mic, which you probably looked at uh, at 2020s, good entry level mm -hmm. mic. And they do the, the 2020 as an XLR and they do it as a, as a USB mic as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a very good one. I've, I've got the 4050, which is quite a good one. I was going to say it's expensive. It depends on your definition of expensive, mm -hmm. but it's very good. But don't go out and, like I say, go and spend loads and loads of money on a microphone unless you've got the sound deadening to go with it as Absolutely. well. 
absolutely mm. and the main reason for me going for this one over the others that you mentioned is purely for if i want to then upgrade then it's got both versions so you can connect it via usb which is much more convenient if you're recording on a laptop yeah, no, very good but then if you do need to go out on the road having something like a, a zoom h5 or h4 little like audio interface um then it's like a hard drive recorder yeah yeah something like that i've found uh just a, a nice easy setup for me for anyone listening i know that some people like this and when they're running and and in the car and stuff don't pull over <laughs> we'll, we'll put all the links to these in the show notes so you can you can check out the different varieties at the end but i think absolutely what you're saying is like your student you set yourself a budget and work with the best of what you can get and and like you say i've even when i first applied for my particular role i had to do an audio or a a screencast with some audio over it and i went in my closet and (laughs) stuck stuck my microphone in between like and had the shirts in front of me so uh right no no it's a fantastic way of doing it yeah i mean i I say that to my students you know when they say oh i can't yeah i can't afford a a whisper room and you know who can they're incredibly expensive which are you know proper sealed booth and i say you know if you've got a wardrobe just open that wardrobe door put the microphone in there or if you've got a like you you've got a walk-in cupboard you can just go in there make sure you've got clothes in carpets on the rugs on the floor and everything and you've got a, a very very good sound booth really that that is quite soundproofed as well you've got to be careful with closets it doesn't sound too boxy that's the only thing but if you've got enough in the way of soft furnishings in there and clothes heavy coats and things then that will really help i had a a student who um, sent me a recording and i I was listening to it i thought this is great and and it's really a nice acoustically dead sound and i thought oh i wonder where she's recorded this and then about halfway through, I heard this gurgling noise. A kind of, <laughs> I thought, what's that in the background? So I said to her, oh, it's really good. I said, it's very acoustically dead uh, and soundproof. But, but what was that gurgling? She said, oh, I'm in, I'm in the airing cupboard. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry, but um, you have to come out of the airing cupboard because you know, every now and again, you're going to get yeah. that uh, filling up the tank sound. So um, she had to go elsewhere. <laughs> that would just ruin, ruin the, all the good work that she'd previously yeah, done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Going back to your role, let's imagine rather than it being the the tutor and the mentor, which sounds like you're doing an absolutely fantastic job, by the way, if somebody was to think about perhaps giving voiceover work a go, what would you suggest that an average day would work, look like? Could you describe a little bit about working hours and, and requirements and like turnaround of projects, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is flexibility. Because voiceovers are international these days, because you can work from home and you're cupboard you know it doesn't really matter where you are and it doesn't matter where your client is so and and voiceovers aren't monday to friday nine to five at all there are some organizations which some potential clients and customers who will uh, be on a kind of 10 till 6 time scale but most people would just be you know could be could be abroad it could be in los angeles could be in berlin they could be behind us time wise or ahead of us and also clients often work at the weekend so I think the number one thing is flexibility. And this is why you can run, when you're starting out, you can run a voiceover career in parallel to to your proper day job. And always remember the golden rule, don't give up your day job just yet (laughs) until you get to that that tipping point where it's okay to actually jump ship. But I would say if you can be malleable and do stuff in the evenings or do stuff at the weekend, then that's great. Turnaround time, it will entirely depend on what you're doing a short three minute corporate read probably will take you an hour two hours to record and edit remember you're you're editing as well nowadays which takes up far more time than as you probably discovered far more time than the actual production (laughs) you know the actual voiceover is, is is relatively is not time consuming particularly but it is the the editing side and the production work that goes into it and it's that that soaks up the time yeah i can vouch for that i always say don't quote a short turnaround time if you can't do it you know if you're about to go on holiday or whatever or it's a long piece and you're about to go to work the next day and you've got a long series of things or you've got family considerations as well you've got you know you've got children or whatever you know do be honest with yourself and your client so turnaround time varies i think if you're doing a long project i always say go on a, a ratio of about five to one so if you did an audio book for example of about 10 hours long so a long book a, a novel that would take you about five times that length to record and edit. 
So you're talking about 50 hours of work. Now that's an awful, if you're doing that part-time, that's an awful lot of effort and work you've got to put into it. So you couldn't say, I'll do that in three days time quite clearly. You'd have to give yourself a long lead time there and a long deadline, a far away deadline in order to do it. So Every job is different and you have to judge everything on a case-by-case basis. So there's no kind of typical day. Most voiceover artists would say there's no typical day from the material I'm doing. You know, one minute I might be selling shampoo for a local radio ad. The next I might be discussing how widgets are made for a company in Dubai, you know. So it's all about, I think, keeping an open mind and being as flexible as you can. That's exactly the kind of message I, I try to um, to give people when I'm I'm talking. Like I, I train some of my colleagues on right, how to do a right. little voiceover, and <laughs> and it's the editing. It is the editing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, and and of course, years ago when I started, you didn't do that. Everything was done for you. You know, you went to studios, and that that sort of work still exists, but it tends to be the high end work usually that's got for you through agents, and it's very difficult to get a voiceover agent. Uh, I have a lot of people sort of contact me and say, can you get me a voiceover agent or how do I get one? And I say, first, you need to get the work. It's chicken and egg. You can't just phone an agent up and say, hello, I've got a lovely voice. Please take me on because they just say, look, go away, do some work and then come back to us in six months, a year's time. Show us what you've done. Tell us what you've done and we'll consider you. But yeah, a lot of work involved in recording yourself, I think. And and it's been the big move, of course, as you know, your generation sort of knows that. Interestingly, a lot of voice actors, my generation and older, have fallen by the wayside because they don't record from home and they're too daunted, myself included. I mean, I remember my agent phoning me up years ago and saying to me, oh, you need to do a new showreel. And I said, oh, I'll get a cassette tape to you straight away. And she said, cassette? She said, no. And I said, oh, you mean a CD? And she said, CD? No, we want an MP3. And I had absolutely no idea what she was on about. So I had to go away and find out. And I thought, an MP3, what does she mean? So even for people, uh, well, certainly for people of my generation, and a lot of older people might be put off by the recording and editing. They might think, oh, my goodness, it's too technical. I'm not technical. But I would say, look, I can do it. One of my oldest students was about 83, I think he was. Wow. And he bought himself, you know, a microphone and got his computer working, used Audacity, you know, the free software. Yeah. And he did a couple of jobs. Age is no bar to getting into voiceover. So, and certainly not from the sound of your voice. And really, it shouldn't be in terms of your, uh, your ability to, to recall from home. I think you'll find it, I say easier, because it's not, sometimes it's very frustrating isn't it when you you lose a piece or whatever it's not working out right but a sound engineer said to me he said look when it comes to recording and editing and production think of it as 10 percent technical learning which buttons do what you know how to press record how to stop how to do a bit of editing he said it's 90 percent creative and artistic that's something that you can't learn on youtube or you can't learn on on you know there isn't a manual for it um he said it's just doing it and finding out, you know, should I leave that breath in? Should I leave that pause in? Is that pause too big? Is it too loud, too soft, whatever. And he said, making those judgment calls each time is part of the the creative production process, really. And most people, I think, get into voiceovers because they've got a creative itch. You know, they want to do it because they don't want to end up working in an office. Although having said that, someone did say to me once, and I said, why do you want to do voiceovers? He said, well, I don't want to be sitting looking at a screen all day. And I said, <laughs> I've got some bad news for you. And that's what you will be doing. But at least you'll be looking at a screen of your own voice. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, don't be daunted, I would say to people who are listening. A lot of people are put off by the technical side and they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be because it's sort of easier than you think, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a small lessons, as that sound engineer said, learning what you need to know and not all the ins and outs. Because, yeah, you can get mm. by with some, mm. some really basic training on that. Thinking about your career so far, what would you say your biggest challenge has been? I think my biggest challenge, in, certainly in terms of training, the coaching side, has been to persuade people that they can do it. I think that's the hardest thing really is getting my students to sort of go for it. I sadly get a lot of people who come along, do the training and then don't do anything. They just don't do anything. And it's really sad. And it used to frustrate me a lot in the early days. And in the end, I just realized I had to let it go. 
But the number one reason why people don't get work is because they're not going for any work and they're not doing anything. And that might surprise you, but it's absolutely true. And it's not to say that if you do go for it, you're definitely going to get some work, but you're in a far better position to get some work and you're far more competitive trying to do it. So my biggest challenge really has been to actually try and persuade people that, yes, they can do it. You can do it. I can do it. I'm not saying everyone can do voiceovers. They can't. I think that would be a silly thing to say. But if you really want to do it, I think you'll do it. And if you want to work at it, want to improve the way you read a script, then that kind of thing, and want, want to learn new skills, then it's there. But I think the hardest part is trying to persuade people that they can do it. I think I've had loads of challenges in my own voiceover career, you know, loads of disasters. <laughs> in fact, one of the worst things ever was about 25 years ago, I was doing a corporate voiceover, quite a high-end corporate voiceover for a company called Digital. I don't even know whether they're around now, but they were right at the forefront of the digital revolution 25 years ago. And I went to Soho where almost all the production houses are, audio edit suites are, or certainly were then. And um, I couldn't say the word digital. And even now, just saying it then, I thought, mm, will I be able to say it? And I had a <laughs> mental block and I suddenly couldn't say it. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can't say this word. And of course it was the name of the company and it's subsequently become <laughs> the word that we all say you know, all the time. Yeah. And I had a block for years on that and I had to try and avoid scripts. And of course, then I was realizing that lots of scripts contain that word. In the end, one day I just woke up and managed to say it. But it's amazing how your brain can sabotage what you're doing and make things worse you would think the subconscious side of your brain would help you wouldn't it you'd think it would be there <laughs> on your behalf guiding you through saying come on mate you can do this but for some reason you know if you get a word you can't say you get absolutely stuck so and there have been other words probably but that's the one that sticks out yeah. in fact, I, I did have a colleague i won't name him but um he was at channel four as well and he said he woke up one morning and realized he couldn't say the word channel so he had to keep saying four, which in fact didn't matter. But he said, I've just got a block on this one word, channel. And I'd never noticed it. I'd heard him lots of times and thought, I've never noticed you doing that. But he said, yeah, yeah, I have. So it's amazing, these little, often tiny things, things that sound really silly. You know, we're laughing now, but at the time it's kind of, oh my goodness, I can't say this word. Yeah. And yet it's absolutely imperative that I say this word. You know, my career depends on it. It's weird. So yeah, lots of kind of little things like that, I think, in, in my voiceover career have cropped up and been, probably I've created a big fuss about them in my own mind, which is been a mountain to climb really thanks for sharing though yeah like you say we laugh about it now but back then I bet it was more of an issue yes absolutely on the flip side to that then what's your proudest moment what's uh what's the thing that you can look back and, and think yeah i'm really proud of that. i think the first uh, certainly in terms of my coaching i think was when i got a student or, or she got it herself but when she started working at channel 4 doing the job that i did basically or a similar job as a continuity announcer and she hadn't had any work for ages and ages and ages just nothing nothing was cropping up in voiceover terms and we were looking at all sorts of avenues and then she wrote to the bbc just out of the blue and said can you take me on as an announcer and they said well come over let's see what you can do she sent off a demo that we did together and they said, we really like you, but you're not quite the right fit for BBC One or BBC Two at the moment. So she was really disappointed because she got so far right through. The BBC have these boards, which are kind of these things you have, these hoops you have to go through and you have to go and see people and do lots of auditions and so on. Quite a nerve wracking, nerve wracking process. And she said to me, oh, you know, I, I've just, I, I haven't been able to do it. And I said, well, why don't you try Channel Four? Kind of my stomping ground. And she said, okay, let's do it. So we remade the demo, the showreel, to skew it towards Channel 4's programming and E4's. And um, you know, she got the job. So, and she's ended up, interestingly, as the head voice at E4. So that was all kind of someone, say, in off the streets, but that's a bit of a crude way of putting it. But you know, she hadn't done it. She'd worked for the NHS beforehand, so never done anything like wow. that before. And so, you know, and now she's flying high and it, it kind of vindicated what I was doing then. And I thought, ah, do you know, it does work. And it's not, you know, I'm saying it as if it's all me. It's not, it's not, it's, it was, was her and what she did. But I said, can I take some credit? And she said, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And we've had a couple of other people get, you know, do similar jobs. So I think, and, and even now, you know, when that happens, that's great when it happens. And, but I think that was my kind of biggest thing. I thought, oh yeah, it is working. And what we're doing with the students is bearing fruit, really. Paying off. Yeah. I, I think like you say, you want to be modest, but it is 
as you perfectly described at the start of the show, it's shining the lights on the road for people. Yes. Yeah. And and absolutely be proud of that. I think that's that's amazing story and, and testimonial that the fine work that you do and, and supporting those people. Yes, they need an element of talent, but yeah, must have filled your pride, sir. Absolute pride. Yes, it did. Yeah. On the flip side of that, in terms of my own voiceover career, I've had some pretty low points. I remember we introduced uh, Channel 4 started Richard and Judy, you know, Richard and, and yep. Judy who were on ITV to start with. And then they moved over to Channel 4. It was a big thing. And we were live and we were put under you know, a lot of pressure to, to promote this program, make sure it's great. Richard and Judy are coming to Channel 4. This was about, I suppose, about 15 years ago, maybe slightly more. Mm. And um, anyway, so uh, I was on for the first ever show that they were there and you know, all the big wigs were listening and so on. And I really built it up, built it up as an afternoon show and I was saying, right, here they are for the first time on Channel 4. Welcome, Richard and Judy, blah, blah, blah. So I did that and I thought, oh, that was all right, actually. And then someone pointed out that The Guardian the next day had written about me and said, that announcer needs to drink less caffeine in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was, that was a, I say it was a low point. It was, it was a very funny point. Um, <laughs> then I, I did a, a documentary on Phil Spector. Do you know Phil Spector, the, the music, uh, the infamous uh, music producer? Yes, yeah. And um, I did a documentary voiceover on that and the Daily Telegraph described my voiceover as illiterate. So you do begin to <laughs> you do think, oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. How do you deal with that kind of, do you just kind of brush it off? Negative publicity. Well, the thing is, in the main in voiceovers, you don't get any feedback. So you don't get, I mean, sometimes you do, and people usually say, thank you very much, you were great. You know, that's the usual thing. Uh, or they just don't book you. They don't think they don't want you anymore. They just don't get a call. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's okay. Really. Is it quite um, cut and dry like that? So if you're not successful, you just don't hear? Well, I always used to have an inverse rule of thumb on this. And I'd say to people that if uh, the client says to you things like, you were great, absolutely fantastic. Oh, we'll definitely use you again. They never do. And likewise, when they say nothing and they never say anything, well, what was that like? Especially if you're going over to a studio and doing it with them there and they've just got kind of stern faces or just go, yep, thanks very much. Thanks. Bye. They sometimes have you back. So there's kind of no rhyme or reason for it. Yeah. And someone once said to me that being a voiceover artist, you should be like a rhinoceros. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, have a tough skin and charge a lot. <laughs> and what he meant was just develop a bit of a tough skin. And that's difficult, I think, because we're all artists, so we like to think of ourselves as talent. And that means that it hurts when people don't like your stuff or, and, or that you don't get through on the auditions. This is a big issue that a lot of my students have. They say, well, you know, I've done three auditions and haven't got any work. I said, well, that's fantastic. If you've done 10 auditions and got one job from it, you're doing really well. You know, it's, mm. it goes with the territory, unfortunately. And often that these media companies don't get back to you or you know, they ignore you, which is the main thing. They don't normally give you any positive or negative feedback. They normally give you nothing at all. Mm. Often you, you feel you're, like you're doing it in a vacuum. And that can be a bit dispiriting. Really. I think that's just the, the way of the world, isn't it? With, I think so, yeah. And they apply for jobs. It's, it's very similar. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, I suppose it is in lots of, lots of industries, mm. really. But I suppose because it's part of you, you're selling a part of you. Yeah. It's slightly different. I think, you know, if you were, I don't know, a sales rep or whatever, and you were selling washing machines and no one was buying them and you thought to yourself, well, actually, they're rubbish anyway. I wouldn't buy one myself. You can be slightly more dispassionate about it. I think it's very different when you're selling a bit of you because it feels very, very personal then, I think. It's kind of, oh, they don't like my voice. You know, mm. How dare they? Yeah, it's much much more personal than a, a bit of kit that you're trying to sell. But um, but yeah, no, thanks thanks for sharing that. I know earlier you mentioned one of the unions. So one of the questions I had was if people were were thinking about perhaps getting into this world, would there be any groups or individuals or potential like societies or unions that you suggest having a look at? Um, I think yeah, I did. I mentioned equity, didn't I, at the beginning of the podcast, yeah. really. And in those days, you had to be a member of Equity in order to do anything on, on TV or radio or commercial voiceovers or whatever. You had to be a member, but you couldn't get any membership unless you'd done some. So it's a sort of chicken and egg thing. But these days, that's all gone out the window. You don't need to be a union member at all. Certainly not in this country. If people are listening in the States, they may be saying, well, that's not true. And it isn't quite true in, in the States. Interestingly, it's much more unionized in our industry in the U.S., uh, and Canada, but particularly the US. And there they've got SAG-AFTRA, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, and there is American Equity as well. And you tend to earn much more money if you are a union member. 
over there. But over here, like I say, it's not important now. You don't need to be an equity member. Uh, in fact, that may put some clients off if you are. And the thing's been opened up and uh, since the 90s, 80s, 90s, it's become much freer. And there probably isn't much of a benefit to being an equity member other than I would say that they can help with disputes. So if you had a contractual problem, someone wasn't paying you or you had a contract with a client and it wasn't watertight or some legal issue, they're very good in that sense and they can provide you with free legal advice, which would cost you a lot of money, you know, if you went to a, a solicitor or something. So for that reason, they're very good. And also they campaign on a lot of issues. And if, you, if you're into those issues, then it's well worth joining as well. But I think from a voiceover point of view, from a voiceover artist point of view, you don't need to be, certainly in the UK, you don't need to be a union member. Fantastic, Gus. Great to know that. And uh, and like you say, knowing those differences, if, if people are across the pond or, or in different parts of the world, I don't necessarily do a lot of reading because I'm just traditionally terrible with uh, with consuming large amounts of, of literature. But I wondered if you've either listened to or read any books that you would perhaps advise people on to give them a bit of inspiration or anything that you found helped over the years? Yes, there is a book written by someone called, lots of books actually, if you just put voiceovers into Amazon, lots will come up and most of the vast majority are American. So they're, they're still relevant, but some of the things aren't as relevant. So the, like the definition of announcer is very different in the States compared to over here. Hmm. So over here, it's sort of, you know, being a continuity announcer, linking between programs. Over there, it tends to be, you could be a sports announcer, so almost like a, a newscaster or sportscaster. Oh, yeah. Or it can mean just a voiceover person anyway, but in that very straight-jacketed way of, hello, I'm an announcer, and this is what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> so over here, it means something slightly different. But having said that, there are a lot of very good books out there, uh, but most of them are American. However, there is one book I particularly like that's written by uh, a British woman called Sharon Brogdon. That's B-R-O-G-D-E-N, I think it is, and it's Sharon. And it's called You Too Can Make Money in Voiceovers. And she is not an actor. She hasn't come from an acting background at all. She was a single mum and just she'd been made redundant and had this legal issue with her former employer. Had a sort of pretty uh, tough time, actually, and decided to get into voiceovers. Bought herself a mic. She kind of had this mad moment. <laughs> Bought herself a microphone and off she went. And she started earning money doing it. And, and it's her story, really. And it's saying, look, you don't need to be a theatrical person. You don't need to be an actor to do this. You don't need to be someone who's had a certain education to do this. And she said, look, I'm a single mom. I just picked up a mic and off I went and, uh, you know, I'm earning money doing voiceovers. And I think it's a great story. It's not a very long book. So even you could read it, Liam. It's, just, <laughs> it's quite short, um, a bit of bedtime reading, but, it, but it's a nice story. And I think she uh, really kind of nails what voiceovers are about in, in the 21st century, really, which is, you know, it's open to people who are good at performing, good at reading, good at communicating, really. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your work history is. Um, so it's a good, good one. Well worth uh, about nine ninety nine, I think it is on Amazon. Fantastic. I'll certainly check that out myself. Like I said earlier, I'll link that in the show notes. So if anyone's interested, it sounds like a great story just for taking inspiration, if nothing else from that in regards to the industry itself. Thanks for suggesting that one. One thing I also like to ask people to share is if you have any wise words or quotes that have kind of um, helped you through and perhaps to, to give some inspiration, motivation to people who are listening. I would say you never get back what you put in. So in voiceovers, it's particularly true. If you do a voice, when you, when you first do voiceovers, you record and then play it back and think, goodness me, I sound as flat as a pancake. And yet I was, I was putting in a lot of effort, what I thought was a lot of effort. So often you don't get back what you put in. And I think it's learning to connect with your, your performance, but still keeping it natural if you can. So that'd be my kind of thing to remember when you're doing a voiceover. That's brilliant. My granddad always used to drum into me, you get out what you put in, but I think that for a voiceover. That, yeah. uh... <laughs> well, he's right. Um, he's right in some ways, but I think when it comes to actually doing a voiceover performance, mm. it's very different. You can often push yourself in a different direction. You can often almost go over what you think is going over the top. And when you listen back, you think, well, no, it's not over the top at all. It's there. And the reason for that is because you've lost a lot of the communication process in voiceovers. So 
if we were on screen, for example, having a, a YouTube chat or whatever, we'd have our body language and facial expressions, which would make up half of the communication process. If you were in conversation, in person, your body language, facial expressions, hand gestures, and so on, would make up 50% of that communication process. But in voiceovers, of course, that's gone. You haven't got anything. You've only got the sound of someone's voice. And so you have to channel those missing elements of communication, the visual elements, into your performance. And that's what I mean by that. I don't mean when it comes to doing the work, but when you actually come to doing a voiceover, recording a voiceover, remember, remember that. I certainly can vouch for that in this kind of world. And I know that I've done some voiceover recordings and I thought, ah, oh, I've given everything there and I've listened back. And similar to your caffeine <laughs> review, I thought, wow, like mm. I've left it a day and listened back to it and thought, I just can't use that <laughs> so um so yeah i totally uh, grasp where you're coming from there it's learning to listen as well i think i think in voiceovers it's learning to hear your voice and, and connect what you perceive in your head as how you want it to sound with the performance and there's that disconnect in the early stages you know that it's about connecting those two things really so that when you do open your mouth it is the sound that you've got in your head you know anyone can read in their heads it's like reading a book isn't it you know all the characters are there it sounds wonderful you know the pictures are being painted and so on if you were to read that out and you have no experience, it's, it, it's a very different sound that you're getting back when you play back. So it's practice, really. Boring, I know, but it's about practice at the end of the day. Fantastic. Last thing just to mention is, first of all, thank you very much for appearing on this episode. And it's been really, really helpful to, to listen to your story and to dive into a bit more about what voiceovers are and, and how people can potentially consider that something they they might not have done before and hopefully it opens their eyes to to your world of of work could you just point people in the direction of where to find you whether that be social media website those kinds of things yes if you just put gary with one r and then terza my ridiculous surname which is t-e-r-z-z-a into youtube say you wanted to look at uh, some training videos lots of videos on there how to do bits of voiceover work and so on, then my channel will pop up there. Or you can just go to VO Masterclass, which is the training program I run, or just you know pop my name into the internet and something will come up, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, having your history on uh, Channel 4 and everything, I'm sure. And especially with a unique sounding last name, I, I must say I've never come across another person with your particular last name. But uh, thanks so much for appearing on this episode, Gary, and uh, I wish you the best for the future. Thanks very much, Liam. Thanks for inviting me. How incredible is Gary, right? Thanks so much, Gary, for spending the time talking to me about what it is that you do and equally the fantastic intro that you've given to the show. I really appreciate you being able to welcome everyone to the show every week. So for this week, the key takeaways I believe you should be taking away from this episode are as follows. Go for it. So as Gary explained, he was told he shouldn't really pursue his dream of getting into broadcasting. And I know that so many of us are told that, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. But why not? Now more so than ever, there are more opportunities out there for us to find a way of excelling in what it is that we want to do and pursuing that career that we're really, truly passionate about. So have confidence in yourself, and do whatever it is you can and create that drive and determination to help you find or create something that you love doing. Another important one is get experience. Not only is it really important to learn your craft, but also it enables you to demonstrate why you're the best fit for the role that you're applying for or proving your worthiness if you're working for yourself. Importantly, when you're starting out, you need to find the right equipment that suits you and your budget. And I think that's really important because you need to focus on getting the basics right. If we look at Gary's example, he explained how you can potentially invest so much money in a posh microphone. But if you don't quite have the right recording space or have an audio interface to support that microphone, then it's not going to guarantee you a better product. So do your homework and find the equipment that will suit you and your budget. If you don't buy a ticket, then you're not going to stand a chance. As Gary explained... Applying for a position or auditioning in this case as often as you can is so important. And in Gary's industry in particular, you're lucky to get a response 1 in 10 opportunities. And I think nowadays, especially if you're applying for jobs, often you won't even get a response for quite a lot of your CV applications that you put in. So keep applying and keep trying to improve what it is you do. It's also important to have a tough skin. So just following on from that last one, these days, quite often, you don't get feedback on what it is you could have done better. 
So by all means, try and inquire as why you weren't quite successful that position or why you're not getting that piece of business at that moment. But equally, sooner or later, you're going to come across those people who aren't your biggest fans. They're going to criticise you and they're going to try and dent your confidence. And that leads me on to the last key takeaway for this week. And that being, treat any failures as lessons. You're going to make those mistakes. But it's really important to understand that no one's perfect. Instead of giving up or being too disheartened or hard on yourself, use it as an opportunity to learn how to do something slightly different in the future. But it might just be you're not the right fit for that particular person or that moment in time. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I have. If you feel like I've missed a key takeaway that you've found, then please get in contact on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Get Work Savvy. If you like the episode and you haven't already, hit subscribe to ensure that you get a new episode every Monday. And remember, if you're starting out or you're thinking of a career change, focus in on what it is that you enjoy doing the most and think about what skills and talent you have that will enable you to get work savvy. Until next week, take care and I'll speak to you soon.